Welcome to the JIMD podcast, a fortnightly companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Whether this is your first time listening or your 101st, we aim to bring you relevant, interesting and entertaining interviews with experts in the world of IMD. If you're enjoying the podcast, please click like or subscribe, but not before listening to a fascinating discussion about mitochondria, medication and polymerase gamma disease. Hello there. I'm very fortunate that as the podcast for a major metabolic journal, I get to welcome some major guests. And this episode is a special treat. Discussing not one, but two important mitochondrial papers, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Lawrence Bindoff, a professor in neurology at the University of Bergen, and Professor Gronje Gorman, also a professor in neurology and the director of the Wellcome Centre for Mitochondrial Research at Newcastle University. Lawrence and Gronje, thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Hello. So if we could begin by talking about medication safety, you're both authors on the paper, uh, The Safety of Drug Use in Patients with Primary Mitochondrial Disease and International Delphi-Based Consensus. This paper is already one of our most popular ones, and that's not really a surprise. Collectively, mitochondrial diseases are among the most common inherited metabolic disorders, uh, but there have been lots of concerns about risks from commonly used drugs. Why is that? I can uh, take that question. Mitochondria are the site and the cell where energy is produced in the form of ATP. While this is perhaps the most important of mitochondrial functions, mitochondria are also involved in many other processes. Many of the drugs that previously were considered dangerous were identified on the basis of a theoretical potential for poisoning important mitochondrial functions, or because laboratory investigations suggested toxicity. However, most of these toxicity studies were performed uh, to see how large amounts of the drug were toxic to mitochondria, and these are not the same as uh, we use in clinical practice. So there was a growing concern among physicians that many of our mitochondrial patients were missing out on uh, existing licensed drugs thought to be toxic, but that actually were very safe, and many of us have used them in our daily practice. So we were concerned that perhaps our patients were missing out on these medicines. I mean, it's an anxiety that I've certainly come across in my own career. How did you set out trying to determine which drugs were actually safe? So this initiative really started um, from interactions between physicians and patient organisations, and particularly the IMP, whose leader, Elja Vandeveer, who was a really major driving force behind this initiative. She, together with Professor Michelangelo Mancuso, and Dr. De Vries were responsible for identifying relevant physicians, scientists who came together to serve as an expert committee. So each of the invited experts was given a list of drugs to evaluate. The work entailed reviewing the literature and the findings and what experiments had been performed and the basis on which mitochondrial toxicity had been suggested. These data were analysed by the individuals tasked with each drug and thereafter by the whole group. We chose the Delphi process uh, since it's an established method for eliciting and processing value judgments. The technique consists of a structured and repetitive survey of at least two rounds in which data is evaluated by groups of experts. The process continues until consensus is reached among the panellists. Between each round, feedback is given to the panellists so that they can then re-evaluate their opinions. It does sound like quite an undertaking. So what were your findings? So James, due to the limitations, you know, of the workshop over two days, we could only really look at a finite number of drugs. 
So we focused on the list of drugs found on the IMP website since this was, in our opinion, the most common source of information accessed by patients and their doctors. So all 46 drugs and compounds in that list were evaluated and the vast majority were considered to be generally safe for patients with mitochondrial disease when used um, as indicated and, and we would also say and in clinically relevant doses although there are a couple of caveats relating to some specific restrictions considered for, say, for certain molecular defects and particular clinical situations. But we would say it's important to stress these last two points. We found that many of the drugs thought to be toxic were in fact safe, as long as they were used in the correct context and in the correct dosage and not for prolonged periods. An example of that would include even drugs like Profofol that were considered toxic, have been used actually safely by many of the panel members. As I mentioned earlier, this has been a really widely read paper and perhaps not unsurprisingly, given the strength of opinion on this topic, there have been some controversies following its publication. Would you care to address any of those here? Yes, uh, there have been controversies and one has to say that the vast uh, majority of the responses to our article has been positive. Patients and their doctors have benefited from this work and we think it vindicates our efforts in reviewing the question of drug toxicity in mitochondrial disease. There have been some negative comments, but by and large, these have come from patient activists who have experienced problems with one or other of the drugs we have now considered as safe. These patients have not really had mitochondrial disease, but other types of disease in which these drugs may well be contraindicated. So this paper very much details the consensus guidelines of an expert panel and provides, I would say, an important update of previously established guidelines in safe medication use in patients with primary mitochondrial disease. And as Professor Bindoff says, that whilst the vast majority of responses have been positive, it is important to emphasise that consensus-based information is useful to provide guidance but the decisions related to drug prescribing should always be tailored to the specific needs and risks of each individual patient. I mean, I'm sorry I put you on the spot of that, but I hope it's the strength of the podcast that we can reflect the reception that papers receive. I know that on the whole, the reception has been very positive. It's a great reference resource for clinicians working with patients with mitochondrial disease, but also for those patients and their families when so much uncertainty exists. It's, it's nice to at least be more confident around medications. Now, I said we'd be speaking about two papers today, and Lawrence, I hope it wouldn't be too cheeky to ask about your other recent paper looking to simplify the clinical classification of polymerase gamma or POLG disease. I think I'd like to begin by asking for a brief explanation of, of what POLG disease actually is. Thank you for the question. Polgamma disease is uh, probably the most common form of inherited mitochondrial disease that we see. It's a disease that presents in all age groups and uh, it can present very early with catastrophic epilepsy and it can present quite late with progressive external ophthalmoplegia. But it's something that uh, all doctors working within mitochondrial disease has to recognise. Okay, so it's a relatively common mitochondrial disease. I think the word relative is doing some heavy lifting there. What was it that you set out to do? Well, like... Many of the uh, mitochondrial diseases, uh, unless you see a lot of them, it's very difficult to recognise them quickly. And what we've been trying to do with our registry is to collect sufficient patient numbers to be able to make some more categorical statements. And this is a collaboration with many groups, most of them within Scandinavia, but also GOS in London and a group in Barcelona, 
where we have tried to collect as many patients with poor gamma disease, that is, patients who have usually recessive and therefore biallelic mutations in the poor gamma gene, get many of those together and then analyse the clinical features so that we can start to make some statements about how they present, with what kind of clinical features, how common is the epilepsy, how common are the other features, and see whether we can come up with a classification that help clinicians make the diagnosis more quickly. One of the problems that has plagued the, the field around polymerase gamma is that, as in many other diseases, uh, the descriptions come sporadically and people call things what they think is appropriate. And so that you accumulate this mass of different syndromic titles. So we felt that there were too many of these. So we wanted to try and classify it so that people could work with more definitive subgroups. So the syndromic names are not helpful then? Yes and no. Uh, everyone tends to know what Alpha's disease is because it's been around from the 1930s. People have reflected on this and thought, OK, that's, uh, that's fine. I understand what that is. But we now see that Alpha's disease is only one manifestation amongst several, and that it depends really on when you present with the disease, i.e. if you present very early, under the age of 10, or you present in your teens or early 20s, or if you present over 40 years old, this will have implications for what kind of features you manifest. So... Yes, Alpha's disease is well recognised and it's still useful. However, it's not the best way to classify poor gamma disease. All right. So now we're on the subject. I do have some vague memories of my time as a junior doctor and the consultant talking about sending G genetics or the interminable wait for the genetics to come back. What was I missing back then? When should clinicians start to suspect that this could be polymerase gamma disease as opposed to something else? Perhaps the easiest way to tackle that question is in terms of the epilepsy. And I have to say immediately that not all patients with poor gamma disease develop epilepsy, but one of the major features and most devastating features is the epilepsy. So in terms of the age groups, those under 10 presenting with epilepsy, failure to thrive and liver disorder have poor gamma disease until proven otherwise. Those in their teens who present with status epileptic as, as their first manifestation of disease, often it must be said, who have been slightly ataxic beforehand but not gone to the doctor, that that's also a classical way that polygamma disease uh, develops. Stroke-like episodes, polygamma, or the mitochondrial 3243 mutation. So these are things that we should be aware of, and it's our job as mitochondrial medicine doctors to make our colleagues aware of it. So I think that what you're saying is captured in a wonderful figure that's included within your paper. And I'd certainly encourage listeners to click on the link in the description and take a look because it's a great paper and the figure is a great prompt about how to move from suspicion to diagnosis. Maybe this won't be great radio, but I wonder if you could talk us through that process. Okay. For those of you looking at the figure and listening to this, we divide our clinical cases up into early onset juvenile and late onset. And we put into the figure the features that would trigger us to think about polygamma disease in those age groups. So hepatic involvement, seizures and feeding difficulty are very common in the younger age group who have pole disease, whereas ataxia, which is both central and sensory, limb weakness, migraine, etc., and seizures, these are the things that are common in the juvenile onset, whereas 
if patients have lived with the disease for longer periods, then it's often ptosis and progressive external amplitude that, that manifest at presentation. And so that's the division of the clinical features that should trigger us to suspect poor gamma. The supportive investigations are related to each group so that we take the EEG and in the early onset and juvenile onset, an EEG with a, an occipital focus would be suggestive. Lactate is sometimes raised, but not often. But all of the patients in all three age groups often have an axonal sensory motor neuropathy. So these are things that would then build up a picture for you. Having first suspected it, these are supportive investigations. But the definitive one is to sequence the entire polygamma gene. There are some founder mutations that some genetic departments like to look at first. But even if these are not found and you still suspect pulp disease, then you really should be sequencing the whole gene. We would put that down as the definitive investigation. Thank you. Now, as you said at the beginning, it's so useful to have this really comprehensive description of so many cases, given how infrequently people are going to actually encounter this individually, especially outside of specialist centres like your own. We started off the podcast talking about medicines in mitochondrial disease, and you busted some myths really about which medicines are safe to use. There are some very definitive recommendations around G disease patients, aren't there? Yeah, no, it needs repetition. We, together with Gronje and the others in the group that looked at the medicines that are safe to use in mitochondrial disease, the one thing that recurs for us all is that sodium valproate is to be avoided in mitochondrial disease and particularly in polygamma disease. This is a drug that can be used as a first-line drug for status epilepticus, but if you don't know that the patient does not have polygamma disease, then it should be avoided. And by and large, I would recommend it to be avoided in cases where anyone is suspected of having mitochondrial disease of whatever form until it's proven that they don't have polygamma disease. Excellent. I mean, thank you both for so eloquently taking me through two incredibly important papers. For those listening who want to read more, please click the links in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for mitochondria and medication safety or simplifying Polgy. Lawrence and Gronje, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you both today. I'm so grateful for your time and I hope that we'll be able to call upon you again in the future. Thank you very much as well. Thanks very much, James. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.